0: Lord, I thank you for the gifts of these women who have sung for us this morning, for its beauty, and the way such beauty speaks to us of the truth of your being, that in you there is perfect peace. Even as I listened, Lord, I could feel my my breathing slow. My heart rate came down. To listen to what is the true nature of the gospel. That one day, all things will be one we will be at peace. And yet today, oh God, all around us is brokenness, disharmony, division and separation at every level amongst human beings. So would you come today and teach us about what it is to live in your kingdom relationally? and how the resurrection changes all of that and sets us free to live as you would have us relationally. So come, O God, and overcome my broken and sinful nature that today you and you alone would be honored and glorified. For we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, out of reverence for the inspiration, the authority of God's word, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading today? The gospel from Luke chapter 14, in just two verses, I will break open the rest of where this comes from in a few moments. Uh, But Jesus is coming to the end of a parable that he is telling at a dinner party, and he says this, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his people. And may the Spirit put it in our hearts in such a way that we can begin to understand our human relationships in different ways, and that by his Spirit, he would bring them to restoration and to healing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago, Lee and I made our annual trek uh, out to Dallas, Texas to visit our families. We've done that every summer um, for years and years, although I would really not describe uh, this most recent visit for either one of us as vacation because we spent most of the time trying to help our aging parents with some of the issues that they are facing. I spent a lot of time with my 89-year-old dad trying to help him organize his house uh, following the death of my mother about 18 months ago. So until I was there a few weeks ago, when you walked in the house, it would have looked like she still lived there. And I, I finally just said to my dad, you know, we need, to, we need to deal with this. We gotta get some work done. And so he said, okay. So the first thing we had to do was deal with my dad's tax returns. And when I say tax returns, I mean tax returns. He has tax returns saved from now until back to 1960. So I was in his attic, I was in his file cabinets, and he was not about to let me throw away anything that he didn't see. And so he would stand there with his cane like this, looking at me. I had the big green garbage bag. I would pull it out of the file cabinet or pick it up off the ground, and I would say, Dad, see, 1993, and he'd go, okay, and I would put it in the back. 13 green garbage bags later, we had it cleared out from 19 from 2020 back to 1990. Took it downstairs, shredding company comes, destroys all that. So when I go back in the fall, I get to do 90 back to 1960. So fun times. Fun times ahead for me, right? My back is still not over it. But then the next day, my two sisters, older sister Susan, younger sister Laura, they came over and we cleaned out my mom's closet. And if you've ever done anything like that, it just puts you into all the feels and all the emotions and all that. But you know me, I'm very task-oriented. I said to my sisters, this is tactical. This is not emotional. We are not gonna pick up every item and think about the times we remember when mom wore it. We are gonna feel for anything in the pockets and then in the bag it goes. All right, so we kind of created a little system in this and I kind of kept everybody on track, imagine that. But we made some amazing discoveries in my mother's closet, the best of which was this. I mean, come on, mom, let's go. I always knew my mom was a closet Dallas Cowboys fan, right? And so I'm in there, you know, feeling on the shelves. And it was underneath all this hangover. I'm like, what is this? So, you know, we've recently redone our master bedroom, and this is now going to hang above our bed. So... <laughs> Lee, Lee is so pleased. She's just, you know, so excited about that. So that was the best discovery of all. Then we're going through my, my mom's drawers, and my younger sister finds in the back a card, a yellow envelope, size of a greeting card, and it's just addressed in my mother's handwriting to Jan. And so my older sister says, well, I'll take it to Jan. I see her all the time. My mom had a very close friend named Jan. And so, but my younger sister says, wait, we can't assume that that card is for that Jan. We don't know that. And so we're thinking about this for a second, and that led to a 10-minute discussion on all the people my mother knew named Jan. And then my younger sister had a revelation, what if she never intended to send it? What if they were in a, in a poor season in their relationship? What if they'd had a falling out, and my mom wrote the card and then decided that she thought the better of it, maybe there's something in that card that she doesn't want Jan to ever see, right? And we're going to blow up the whole thing if we send it to her. And then, naturally, I'm thinking, what if there's money in it, Right? Maybe my mom got involved in some gambling ring and there's a cashier's check for thousands of dollars, right? So all this stuff is going on. And finally, I can't stand anymore. I take the card, I rip it open and, uh, before my sisters could actually do anything about that. And, uh, and here's what the card said. Jan, thanks for your sweet friendship all these years. I'm so glad to have you as my friend. Love, Nancy. So we open the card. Not an additional clue at all. We have no idea if it's the friend Jan or if it's somebody named Jan that she knew. So that card is now sitting on top of the 1960 to 1990 tax returns, and we'll throw that away when I got there. But, but in the conversation, we weren't just talking about a yellow greeting card, were we? We were actually talking about the fundamental nature of relationships, human relationships. Who was Jan? Jan? Do we know if it was this Jan, or do we was it a Jan uh, that my mom knew somewhere uh, else in her life? What was their relationship? Were they friends? Had they had a falling out? Were they in trouble? Was this the key to their forgiveness? What was the purpose for which my mom was sending Jan this card? We didn't know, so what was all that? It's just the myriad complexity of human relationships, right? It's just who we are as human beings. We're hardwired to be in relationships. Why? Because God As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in his Trinitarian being, he is interrelated. Therefore, we who are made in his image are going to be relational creatures. We need each other. We're built for relationship. We all know that, but what's the problem? We do that in sinful ways. We have not fully overcome our sinful nature yet. So every time we get involved in relationships, we're always gonna lean a little bit towards doing what is best for self, what we want. We're gonna do what we need to manipulate, as it were, the relationships around us to be sure that we are filling our cup, that we're getting what we want done to be done first. It's just part of our sinful nature. And and you know this, I know this, when I get invited to play golf on a Saturday, before I ever go talk to Lee about that, I'm going to empty the dishwasher. I'm going to pick up my dirty clothes off the floor of the closet, be sure they're in in the clean clothes hamper, the dirty clothes hamper, And I might even go wash your car, and then I'm gonna ask her, why? It's not out of pure love, people. I'm confessing that to you now. It's because I want her to do what I want when I ask the question. Right, I'm trying to manipulate her in a way that's gonna let her say, oh yeah, sure, go play golf. And don't act like you don't do that. You know you do that. We all in our relationships are thinking about, okay, how can I play this person, this business associate, my spouse, my child, my neighbor, How can I get them to do, essentially, what I want? We're just hardwired that way. And so if we're gonna overcome that, if that's the reality, because see what happens is when you play that out, the example I used was kind of fun, but when that comes down to a deeper level and when you and I function in relationships based on what we want, without really thinking about what is God calling us to do in the life of the other person, when that gets down to its deeper levels, that's what leads to relational brokenness. That's what leads to separation. And then when you layer that across a culture, across a society, then that's how you arrive at things like human trafficking, where one person says, well, I don't care about their life. I'm just gonna get what I need. I'm gonna do what I want. It's how you get to war. It's how we got to Russia and Ukraine. It's what leads to racism. It's what leads to classism at least to what you see in politics now where no one can get along, Republicans, Democrats, all this hatred, all the vitriol that we see around us. And we stand back and go, okay, if I know that that's actually true, I recognize that in human relationships, I'm not always gonna function purely. I'm gonna try to move in ways that are gonna get me what I want. If that's the case, then where is our hope for broken relationships, for all the brokenness that we see around us? Our hope is it Easter morning, our hope is in the resurrection because at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we've been talking about now for weeks... He inaugurates the coming of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he reveals himself as that Messiah who was to come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the king of that new kingdom. And then he says, everything in that kingdom is going to operate in a different way. We're going to relate to each, other's in, in, to each other in different ways. It's not gonna be based on pride. It's not gonna be based on what I need. It's gonna be based on humility and self-sacrifice as exemplified by Jesus, so that what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming kingdom of God would one day come true. Isaiah chapter 11, verse six, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The picture of the kingdom of God When the king of kings and the Lord of lords is raised from the dead, he inaugurates a new way in which we in the kingdom of God will relate. We will not relate based on pride and personal hubris, but it's about oneness and it's about unity and it's about harmony and ultimately it will be about peace. And that's actually what Jesus is driving at in Luke 14 today. So Luke, as we know, he was a physician not one of the original 12, but a very close friend of Paul's, a companion on his missionary journeys. So Luke was in the know. Luke saw a lot. He was witness to many other eyewitnesses who were talking about Jesus. But we get to Luke chapter 14, and Jesus is at a very unusual dinner party. Number one, because it's a dinner party in the home of a highly respected religious leader, a Pharisee. So the Pharisees didn't like Jesus at all. It said, in fact, in verse one, it says Jesus was being carefully watched. So maybe Jesus got on the invite list so the Pharisees could keep an eye on him. Maybe ask him some questions. But then down in verse seven, Jesus is at this dinner party. And Luke says he noticed something. Verse seven says he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. And that propelled him to tell a parable. So he, he realizes that everybody's pushing down towards the end where the host was sitting because that's where the people of honor, that's where the most important people are gonna sit. And that causes him to then tell this parable where a guy decides to have a dinner party. He invites a bunch of people. Lo and behold, nobody comes. This is a pastoral phobia. I invite you to a thing every Sunday at 9 and 11, 15, and I'm worried that one day none of y'all are gonna show up, right? So I understand the phobia, but then Jesus says in verse 13, when you have a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so what Jesus says, in the way my kingdom is gonna work, I'm gonna explain it to you through the lens of this dinner party and this parable I'm gonna tell you, but the way we relate to each other and the whole idea of payment and repayment and what you get out of relationships, the way I want you to interact is all based on the resurrection. And how we understand the resurrection. Relationships that are godly and Christ like are grounded in Easter morning. So let's look at this and what God in Christ is teaching us in Luke 14. I'm gonna do something very un Presbyterian today. I have only one point. I'm gonna probably lose my Presbyterian card for not having three, but it's just one point. Here it is The resurrection delivers us from what I just described. The resurrection delivers us from the need to manipulate relationships in every sphere of our life in order to get what we need because God in Christ has poured into our hearts exactly what we need by his love and grace and goodness revealed at the resurrection. We don't have to do that anymore because God in Christ rose from the dead. Now, to understand that fully, We have to understand how dinner parties functioned in Jesus's time. They're not like dinner parties today. So those of you who are great dinner party hosts, normally you invite people to your house because you enjoy them and you wanna do something for them. You're serving them in some way and that's all great. Not how it worked. Dinner parties then were all about social climbing. It was all about social status. It was all about classism, right? So when you had a dinner party, you were going to very strategically invite people. You would invite some people who were lower than you were socially because those were the people who would come to your house and they'd fawn all over you and act like you were a big deal. They'd just be thrilled to be in your house, right? Because they're not quite as good as you. But then you would also stretch a little bit and you'd invite people who were socially a little bit higher than you because when some people heard that these people are in your house, you would benefit by association. And then the whole purpose of your hospitality was based on what Luke refers to, Jesus talking about repayment. You invited people with the expectation that you were going to get invited to their dinner party. They were going to pay you back. And you know what, people? That hadn't changed much since Jesus' day, has it? I don't know, but when I was little, my mom was not about being in debt to anybody. right? So if some kid invited me over to spend the night, within six days, that kid was at my house spending the night because my mom was not going to let anybody get ahead of her. Right, and we'd be sitting around for dinner and I'd hear my mom say to my dad, well, the Joneses invited us to their house for dinner. We've got to get that on the calendar. We have to return the favor. Right, it was all about about repayment. And think about how social media today has changed how we view dinner parties. Now everybody knows. Go to a dinner party, now there are pictures on social media and you see, oh, so-and-so had a party. Look who was there. They're all very beautiful people. Why wasn't I invited? Right, and then we start wondering, wait, Gosh, I wonder why I wasn't there. And you start questioning your own mind. Am I in or am I out? And what does that feed? It feeds the way in which you try to manipulate other people to get what you need. Because now you're not as much of an insider as you thought you were. You're more of an outsider. So you think to yourself, well, I need to call this person. Maybe I should do lunch there. I need to improve that relationship. All to manipulate these things to get what you need. Right? You know it's true. You know this is how we function. And it's all just right there in front of us in the way that people functioned at Jewish dinner parties back in the day and to a certain extent still function today. All right, so what does Jesus do? Jesus then comes and he turns the whole thing on its ear and he says, let me explain relationships in my kingdom. He says, when you go to a dinner party, don't crowd down there in the places of honor. Be humble. Go sit at the other dinner table. If someone comes and says, oh, no, no, sit up here, fine. But don't start out there. Function in relationships with humility. And in fact, when you have a dinner party, invite the blind, the lame, the crippled, invite people who can do nothing for you. Because people, the hardcore truth is so often in relationships, we're building relationships with people and we wanna be with people. Why? Because we think they can do something for us. We think they can repay us in some way. And Jesus says, be unconditional. Don't require anything from the people that you are going to invite to be with you. And when he says that to all his Jewish hearers and Luke writes this gospel, the question that had to be on the minds of all those who heard it was how? How can I do that? How can I do that and still be the person that I think I need to be and social climb and do all the things that culture requires of me? Answer, the resurrection. Jesus says, look, it's not about how people repay you. It's about what God has done for you in Christ at the resurrection. And what does the resurrection reveal? Two things. It reveals to us that you are more broken and darkened by sin than you ever thought possible, that you cannot save yourselves, so that you are desperately in need of someone from outside of yourself to come and save you. And that's what God did for you in Jesus Christ. And it's not just true of you, it's true of everyone. And what that does, what that means, is that the resurrection of Jesus blows up classism, it blows up social status because there's no higher or lower in the church. You can't come in here and act like you're all that. You need Jesus just as much as anybody else does. And so it shows you, it reveals to you, we're just people, God's creation, and we're desperately in need of what God has done for us in Christ. So it changes the whole dynamic of social status and classism in the life of the church and the way we function in community. But not only does it reveal to us our brokenness and our darkness, but it tells us how much we've been loved. We are far more loved than we ever dared even imagine. And when you and I come to comprehend the depth of God's love for us in Christ, that he would incarnate himself, die upon a cross, and rise above death, defeat our greatest enemy out of what? Out of love that God took your place. And people, what happens when that reaches into the depths of your heart and you know that the creator of the universe has loved you eternally and sacrificially, that the creator of the universe delights in your life, then in that moment, your cup has been filled. You now have the very thing that you've been looking for a sense of security and worth and value and purpose in life. When you look at the resurrection and the love of God poured out for you in Christ, you have it. You've been loved by the creator of the universe. There could be nothing greater, and he's loved you in the greatest way. And so all of a sudden in that moment, you've been set free. Do you see what happens? Now, I know we'll never do this perfectly, but as you mature, you'll begin to realize I don't have to manipulate the people around me to get what I need. I already have it. My cup has been filled with the love and the grace and the goodness of God so I can actually love other people as we talk about often around here without expectation or condition. Right, So I can love my spouse without expecting anything in return. I can tear up the marital scorecard. How about that? And when I've functional relationships at work, I no longer have to think about, well, I need to do this, or I need to do that to show how good I am. I don't have to be manipulative. I can just be who I am because I know who I am in Christ. Listen to what Tim Keller says about the impact of the resurrection. As Christians, we actively befriend and serve people who could never open doors for us or invite us to their villas or bring us more clients and business And the reason Christians live in such a radically different way is the resurrection. The glory and bliss and love of the final resurrection and renewed world will infinitely, innumerable times over more than recompense us for any sacrifices in this life. So you just see how the the resurrection changes the lens by which you see relationships. It's no longer in your life about manipulating others. You've been set free to love people in the manner of Christ unconditionally, sacrificially, and you also understand that in your life, there's no such thing as class. It blows up the sin of classism and how we view other people as higher or lower. All that disappears through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Let me, let me show you how this works out practically. There's a Presbyterian minister in our community. His name's Eric Stites. Maybe some of you all have met him. I've known him 25 years. He's an amazing guy. And he has a ministry called Crosstown in Paramore And that is bringing the hope of Easter morning to the urban poor. But the unique thing about Eric's ministry is that he and his wife and his four kids live in Paramore. They don't have to live in Paramore. They chose, they choose to live in Paramore. Why? Because they understand Luke 14. Because they move into a community where they see others not as higher or lower, and they move into the community with no expectation of anything being done for them. There's no sense of need for repayment. They understand the resurrection, that God has revealed to them who they are in Christ, and that those in the community of Paramore are in need of the same gospel that Eric and his family have received. And so they go and they live with them. and yeah, they hear gunshots at night, and they see some of the unseemly things that happen in that community, during the day, but they're also beginning to see the dawn of the light of Christ arise in the eyes of those people because Eric Stites and his family understands how the resurrection changes relationships. They're brothers and sisters and they simply live together in community. So let me ask you this morning, I want you to think about your relationships Are there relationships in your life where you find that you're being strategic, that you're being calculated, where you're manipulating others because you need them to give you something that you haven't actually believed to be true about the resurrection? There's something about the resurrection that you have not internalized. And maybe as you look at other people who in your life, they're just hypercritical, you know what? It may well be that the reason they're critical of you is because they're insecure and feel inferior. And they don't understand the way the resurrection has spoken into their lives. So the way they feel better about themselves is to put you down. It helps you understand and gives you a lens for the relationships that you have in your life. But at least think about that today. And are there those that you need to lay that part down? And so I'm not going to get all strategic and manipulative here. I'm I'm just going to be unconditional, and I'm going to love without expectation or condition my marriage with my children, my business, my neighbors, just because I don't need anything from them because my cup has been filled by what the resurrection reveals to me. And then secondly, I think it's important, not only does this change how we function in relationship, changes our whole view of classism, but also changes our whole view of racism That's another place of deep cultural brokenness among us. And racism at its very core is just when one person decides that one racial ethnic group is better than another. Well, where does that come from? Again, in its basic, most basic form. If I feel insecure and inferior, if I feel somehow threatened, then I'm going to create a narrative in which people who look like me are better than people who don't. That's all it is. And then it multiplies out. And let's be clear, racism didn't start in the United States of America. Racism goes back for generations, for thousands of years. It sure goes back to Jesus' time. And there's one instance in Galatians chapter two that was really acute because Peter in front of Paul was being an out-and-out racist, right? There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, two racial ethnic groups coming together. They didn't necessarily like each other. But what does God do? He says, well, in the kingdom of God, your identity in me is much more uh, of a factor. It's the greater foundation than your racial ethnic identity. So you need to be one, you need to be harmonious. But there are some Jews who said, well, in addition to your faith in Christ, you still need to be circumcised to be okay. And so Peter goes to Antioch to visit Paul and he's with the Gentile Christians. And at first it's great. He's fellowshiping with them, they're eating meals together, everything's good. But then some Jews come from Jerusalem. And when those Jews arrive, all of a sudden Peter slinks off from the Gentile table and he won't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He'll only eat with the Jews. And Paul calls him out on it. In Galatians chapter two, verse one, he says, I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. And then later, Paul writes in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision, Jewish, or uncircumcision, Gentile, means anything. So racial, ethnic background, that's not the issue. What counts is a new creation. In other words, what counts is the way we've been bound together in Christ, not necessarily our racial, ethnic identity. Now listen to what Tim Keller says about this. Christianity did not destroy your national identity by taking you out into the desert into a new exclusive community to live apart from the rest of the world. That wasn't it. Nor did it give you a detailed set of rules on how to dress, eat, or whom to associate with and avoid. No, if you were Jewish or Greek or Asian, and you became a Christian, you remain Jewish or Greek or Asian. Yet your fundamental identity now lay elsewhere, and it gave you a critical distance from your own culture that enabled you to better assess its strengths and weaknesses. It also gave you deep bonds with Christians from other cultures and races. So you see how the resurrection blows up racism, what it means is it gives us a fundamental, deeper identity and bond in Christ. But it doesn't mean we lose our national identity. If you were Jewish or Greek or Asian, you're still Jewish or Greek or Asian or black or brown or red or whoever you are today. But what it does do is it gives you a critical distance. So instead of just blindly going around, going, Well, my people are perfect, you can stand back from it a little bit and go, Okay, man. My racial ethnic group, we do some things really great, but here's some places where we need to work. So it gives you a maturity to be able to look critically at who you are and the tribe you're a part of while also understanding that the other racial ethnic groups are not threats to your well-being. They're not threats to your security. But instead, remember, there's a false notion that we can look at other people, oh, well, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. that's not who God calls us to be either. Revelation 7, 9 says that the kingdom of God is made up of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So we maintain who we are in our racial ethnic identity, but we're bond by an even greater connection, bound together by it because of our unity in Christ. So when we see other racial ethnic groups, we're not to be threatened, but instead we celebrate that and we come to understand them more deeply right, which is why today matters. Today is Juneteenth, right? So today is a very significant day in the life of African-Americans in this country, because it's the day in which they remember the official end of slavery. So instead of looking at that as something, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. Why? Because some of your brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, that's a very significant thing to them. So we celebrate it. We try to understand it. Why? Because the resurrection tells us that we have to not try to Get things or manipulate things from others in order to make us feel better about ourselves. Our cup's been filled and we've been called together to be a part of this community in all of her beautiful diversity. So, not a threat, but a gift. The variety of the colors in the kingdom of God. So, a number of weeks ago, I'll close with this, a number of weeks ago, a number of years ago. I'm standing outside here under the angel wing after the late service. And I'll be honest, that was back in the days when I was preaching three times by the time I got to the end of the late service, I'm whipped. I'm ready to go home. But I'm out there doing my thing under the underwing, sweating, doing you know what I do every week so well. I'm a gifted sweater. And I and I'm talking to people and then I notice there's a there's a young uh, black man leaning up against the wall. His clothes aren't great. His hair's kind of unkempt. And I'm thinking I don't wanna talk to him, I'm tired, I wanna go home and eat lunch, all my sinful David Swanson qualities just bubbled up to the surface. And so I dutifully talked to everybody who was there, the people go away, and then finally it's just me and him. So I summon my last bit of energy and I walk over to him and I'm like, okay, how can I help you? And he kinda draws back a little bit and he goes, nah, dude. He goes, I don't need your help. I don't need anything from you. He said, I was walking down the street and I saw you and I thought, man, that dude looks tired. (laughs) He looks so heavy. I thought I'd just come pray for you. Can I pray for you? And God went, whack. He was more spiritually mature than I was. Because you know what? He saw me the resurrection, not me. I saw him through classism and racism, 100% guilty. But he said, I'm not his superior. I'm not his inferior. I was just a brother in Christ who looked like he needed some help. And he came over to offer it because we're all part of the family of God. He saw me through the lens of the resurrection. So my prayer for us is that we'd start to see one another through the lens that that guy not mine. That's the mature lens that blows up classism, blows up racism, blows up a lot of isms in our world that shouldn't be, and reminds us that I've been loved from the foundations of the world. That my cup has been filled. So when I move into relationship with you, I don't need anything from you. I can love you in the manner of Jesus. I can lay down my life and give you what is the hope of the world. I pray that we will more and more become that people, that church, together in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we'll never get to this perfectly, but I thank you for a young black man who taught me a very good lesson about how we see one another about what motivates our behavior in relationships. I pray that your spirit would just sort of prick our conscience when we start to do things that are manipulative of others. That we would slow down and catch ourselves and say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm a love as a citizen as the kingdom of God today. I'm gonna love without expectation or condition. I don't need repayment because the resurrection your grace, O oh God, your goodness, your peace has already filled our hearts. We have what we need when we have been filled by you. So may that spill from us into all of our relationships as we bear witness to the light and the hope of you, our God. We ask it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.